0: You are present in this place. Heavenly Father, thank you that you care about us, that you love us, that you are a faithful God who keeps his promises, that all of your promises, Lord, are yea and amen in Jesus Christ. And we, we embrace that. We take hold of that today in Jesus' name. And Lord, this morning we ask that you would help us to be the worshipers that you desire, those who worship in spirit and in truth. Lord, those who worship with heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Lord, we ask that this morning as we open your word, Lord, that you would help us, you would fill our minds with thoughts of you, with deep thoughts of you, and Lord, translate those into deep emotions towards you, Lord, that we might live a life wholly devoted to you. So this morning, Lord, we ask that you would speak into our lives. Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear what you're speaking to us today, Lord, that it would sink down deep in us and that by your spirit you would anoint us to be hearers of your word and that you would... Uh, Lord, let us get all that you desire to communicate to us and teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as you know, we are going through the book of Genesis on Sunday mornings. You know, um, Genesis is one of the greatest books in the Bible, and, and the reason for it is because Genesis gives us a foundation. It gives us a foundation for our understanding of who God is, of who we are and a foundation for our understanding of who Jesus is and why Jesus came. You know, Ultimately, the whole Bible is the story of Jesus Christ. Even this, what we're studying here in Genesis. The Bible is really not a religious scrapbook of, of random disconnected stories that have something to do with God. But it is a unified narrative which tells one great story, one grand overarching story which is really the true story of the world. It tells us what's wrong with the world. It tells us also what God has done in Jesus Christ to make it right and how God is going to ultimately redeem the world and make all things right. So the book of Genesis really breaks down into into two primary themes, creation and covenant. The first 11 chapters are really about creation. We see the origins of many things. We see the origin of man, the origin of sin, the origin of redemption. We see the origin of even things like marriage and culture and commerce and cities. And then in the next section, chapter 12, from chapter 12 to the end of the book, the primary theme is covenant, that God enters into special relationships with people based on his promises to them. And really the, the guy who make who changes everything where we go from you know the dividing line between creation and covenant is a man named Abraham. And and at chapter 12, the the focus of the story zooms in from kind of a wide-angle lens of the whole world, and it focuses in on this man, Abraham, and his family. And God makes a covenant with him. He enters into a special relationship with him based on a promise. He says, Abraham, if you will take my hand, if you will follow me where I lead you, then I will bless you. I will make you a great nation with many descendants. And out of those descendants, I will bring about the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one who will deal with the problem of sin, the one who will crush the head of Satan, the one through whom God will provide redemption and salvation and liberation and eternal life. So today in our study, we are in Genesis chapter 20 and 21. That means we are kind of getting towards the tail end of the story of Of uh, Abraham. His story lasts from chapter 12 to about chapter 25. And in our study today, we're going to see the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to give him a son. And as we do that, we're also going to reflect on what God's purpose was in making Abraham wait so long for that promise to be fulfilled. So today, the teaching—the title of the teaching is The Promise Fulfilled, and as we look at it, we're going to break it down in this way. First of all, we're going to talk in chapter 20 about the man of integrity and the man of faith. You'll see what that means in a moment. And then in chapter 21, we're going to look at the first part, in which we see the birth of Isaac. But as we do that, it's very closely knit to the first part, because we're going to be talking about how God uses our faith as the means through which he forms our character. That's an interesting thought, so track with me on this. So let's start here. Uh, The man of integrity and the man of faith. If you have your Bible, please read along with me in Genesis chapter 20 from verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Hmm, this kind of seems familiar, doesn't it? Have we, haven't we, it almost seems like we've seen this happen before. Well, that's because we have. We have seen this exact thing happen before. A few chapters back, about 20 years before the incident we're reading about now, Abraham left the land that God had told him to go to and inherit by faith. And in a moment of kind of freaking out and and not knowing because of his circumstances, there was a famine in the land. He left the land where God had told him to go, and he went down to Egypt, which in the Bible is never really a good thing to do. So Abraham goes down to Egypt, and he's afraid that Pharaoh's men are going to want to kill him because his wife is a good-looking grandma. So the authorities stop him, and, uh, and he doesn't tell him that Sarah's his wife. He tells him that Sarah's his sister. And then God apparently cares more about Abraham's marriage than Abraham does. God cares more about Abraham's legacy than even Abraham cares about his own legacy. So God intervenes in that situation. Abraham was going to blow it, but God intervened and said, No, Abe, I love you too much, and I'm going to intervene here. And Abraham was totally humbled. He realized he had blown it. He got rebuked by a guy who's a pagan when he's supposed to be the guy who knows the Lord and walks with the Lord. And, uh, and so then we see that he returned to his home, to the place he had last met with the Lord. He rebuilds the altar. He offers sacrifice, which is his way of repenting of his sin and returning to the Lord. But now here he is, 20 years later, and he's doing the exact same thing. But here's, So here's what happens. A- Abraham and Sarah are on the move again. We don't know why they're on the move. Negev literally just means south in Hebrew. So they're just in the land of the south. And um, we don't know why, but they're going to this area. What we know about this area is that this was the area inhabited by the Philistines. Now, the Philistines were not uh, Christian people, right? They were not even God-fearing people, as we see in this story. But Abraham figures like, hey, we're going to Philistine territory, They're a bunch of godless people, so they must be immoral people. And so surely they're going to try to kill me to get my wife, because even though she's 90, she is hot with two Ts. You know what I'm saying? She was hot 20 years ago back in Egypt, and uh, now she's 90 years old, and she's still hot. She aged very well. She had some good Hebrew genes there. So Abraham tells Sarah, Look, if these guys stop us and they ask us about our relationship, we're just going to tell them we're brother and sister, okay? And then if they want, then they can take you and do with you as they will. And you can, you know, marry the king or whatever you got to do. Sounds good? (laughs) How is this, how does this even not register with him that this is not a good thing to do, right? It'd be like if I took my wife to Denver and I'm like, well, honey... This is kind of a rough neighborhood, so here's the plan. If we run into any dodgy characters, any shady people, then, uh, and they start giving us any trouble, then I'm just going to let them take you to their crib, and then, you know, then I can save my own self, because, you know, honey, I bruise easily, I, my, nose, my nose runs, you know, if I get scared, so I don't like to fight, so let's just do it that way, and then we'll work it out, you know? Um, she wouldn't be too excited. Actually, that's what I tell her every time she gets upset with me. Is I'm like, hey, look at this guy. He was way worse. He sold his wife twice. I have never even once tried to give you away to anybody. So Abraham tell, recently, think about this too. God tell, told Abraham very recently, he said, I'm going to give you a son by Sarah within a year. But now here's Abraham giving away Sarah to another man so he can sleep with her. That doesn't seem like a very good idea. Like, what if she gets pregnant by that guy? That's not going to be good, right? See, Abraham's blowing it here. What he's doing is essentially jeopardizing all that God has planned for him, all that God has promised him. He's jeopardizing everything that he has been waiting for for 24 years. 24 years he's been waiting for this to happen, and now he's like going to give it all away and give it all up. Why? Because Abraham's living in the moment. He's looking at this moment. He's thinking about what will be good for me in this moment? What will feel good for me in this moment? And he's not thinking about what the long term repercussions of his actions will be. You know, in our culture, we always, we have this saying, live in the moment, you know? Hey, be in the moment. But, but here's the thing that can be good advice for people, but it can also be really bad advice for people. And it's actually, living in the moment is something which causes a lot of people to sin and, and do terrible things that without thinking through the future repercussions. Right? Uh, you know, So Abraham's living in the moment right now. His prerogative is, don't get beat up. Don't get killed. That would not feel good for me in this moment. He's not thinking about how this is going to affect his legacy. He's not thinking about how this is going to affect his wife or his future. He's just thinking about this right now. How is this going to feel? And actually, a lot of problems in Abraham's life are really the result of him thinking only about the situation at hand. And a lot of times when we sin, it's, it's because of the same kind of mentality. That we're looking at things only in the moment. We're not considering the long-term effects of what we do. You know, but in Genesis, that's one of the main things that, that God wants us to see. That's one of the main things the story tries to teach us. Because what we see in Genesis is that our actions have long-term repercussions. Abraham goes to bed with Hagar. He sees it as a one-night stand. Well, what happens? A child is born, and out of that child comes a nation, and out of that nation comes thousands of years of conflict and bloodshed, even up to our present day, right? Uh, you know, Abraham was just thinking, cool, I get to sleep with Hagar, you know? He's not thinking about nations. He's not thinking about thousands of years of conflict, and, and many people today, we get ourselves into trouble and problems Because of living in the moment with no thought for how that action will affect the future. And and this is something for you to think about. When you are faced with temptation, do consider what are going to be the long-term effects if I do that. You know that guy or girl at work who flirts with you? If you go down that road, you're going to lose your family. You're going to lose your integrity. You're going to lose the respect of your children. You don't want to go there. You don't even want to start to go there. It's too much. Think about it. Don't just live in the moment. Don't just think about the, the case at hand, but think about where that's going to lead. That's what Genesis wants to show us. You know, uh, if you open that web page, if you go to meet with that person, the point is this. Don't just live in the moment. You have to live with a bigger perspective. And that's what God's showing us here in Genesis. So, so along come these guys, and, and Abraham tells Sarah, these are just godless People, so they must be totally immoral. So the way we should deal with them is we should lie to them and then let you sleep with their king. Well, that's kind of ironic, isn't it? That's, that's not ironic at all, right? Um, these people are immoral. So what we should do is lie to them. And then I'll let you sleep with their king. That's not really good thinking there, is it? So the authorities come. Now, I don't know if you've ever been stopped by police in a foreign country Uh, But if you have, you know how intimidating that can be, right? So here come the guards of the king, and they say, identify yourselves. So Abraham and Sarah identify themselves, and the authorities are like, why do you guys have the same last name? And uh, is that your wife? And Abraham's like, no, no way. Her? My wife? Yeah, right. Nah, nah, she's my sister. So you can have her, do whatever you'd like. Uh, It's not like she's my wife or something, you know? What a hero, right? What a man. So, so we see over and over through Genesis that the men whom God saved and worked through were not perfect people. They were not superheroes. They were just people like you and me. They were imperfect people who made mistakes and did bonehead things. And, and one thing that made them special, though, is this. And this is what's important to take note of. The thing that made them special is that they responded to God when God called them. They obeyed God when God spoke to them. And that is the question we have to ask ourselves. Not, am I good enough for God? Because the reality is, no, you're not. None of us are good enough for God. The question is, will I respond to God? Will I be a person who responds to God? Will I respond when he calls me? Will I obey when he speaks to me? Let's continue on from verse 3. And God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So these guys come along. Abraham and Sarah both lie about their relationship. The men take Sarah to the king's house, but by a miracle of God, Abimelech is too tired that night to consummate the marriage. So he says, maybe tomorrow. And in that night while he's sleeping, he has this dream and God speaks to him and says, hey, better not touch that woman. You better give her back because she's another man's wife. And Abimelech says, I honestly didn't know she was another man's wife. He told me she was his sister. I believed him. I wouldn't have done this. And God says, well, you would have done it, but I stopped you from doing it. So anyway, here's, here's two things that we see that are really important to take note of. Number one, God speaks to unbelievers. Did you know that? God speaks to people who do not know him, who do not have a relationship with him. The Bible tells us that even the work of the Holy Spirit is exactly that. To convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And what that means is that God speaks to unbelievers. God's Spirit is active in the world. He's speaking to all people. You know, not everyone, though, who God speaks to listens. Not everyone whom God speaks to obeys. Many people disregard it, some people harden their hearts, others re- respond by nodding their heads in agreement, but it just goes in one ear and out the other and nothing ever comes of it. But the fact is that God can and does speak to people, even people who don't know him. Secondly, we see that God speaks to people in supernatural ways, and one of them is through dreams. Dreams. You know, many years ago, I I heard a a pastor speaking about how in closed countries, such as many of the Muslim countries of the Middle East and Asia, where, you know, it's impossible to send missionaries because they're closed, uh, they can't send gospel materials, they can't give them Bibles, but people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ through dreams that they were having. Now, I heard that, and I said, well, that's kind of interesting, and then I kind of went on with my life, but not long after that, I found myself in Hungary, and, uh, and I was working in a refugee camp there, as I've told you about before, and, uh, and Rosemary and I, we met this man from Iran, and this was a man who had converted to Christianity in Iran, not because someone came and preached the gospel to him, but because he had a dream. So it was really interesting. You know, I had heard this thing. I thought, oh, that's interesting. But then I met this man, and it became a reality to me, you know. This man told us how it happened, that he was, you know, living his life. He was a plumber, and he he kept having these dreams. He started having these reoccurring dreams of a man on a cross suffering and bleeding, and he didn't know what to make of them. So he asked his neighbor, who was an Armenian Christian. Now, in Iran, they will let you practice Christianity if that's your, you know, if you're an ethnic minority that traditionally practices Christianity. So he asked his Christian Armenian neighbor, hey, what are, what are these dreams? And the man said, that is Jesus Christ speaking to you. So these dreams continued. And in these dreams, he said that this man in the dream was calling him to come and follow him. And so he realized that ...that this was Jesus calling him. Now, our friend had no knowledge of Christianity... ...except what he had learned about it... ...in his Islamic-run school. But he realized that Jesus Christ was calling him... ...to become a disciple. So our friend, as a result of these dreams... ...he ended up converting to Christianity. He uh, stopped attending mosques... ...and he started attending Christian meetings. But you know how that society works... ...is that when news spread... ...that he was attending these Christian meetings... ...he began to suffer persecution... And for him, that meant that his kids got kicked out of school, he lost his job, and someone set his house on fire. Now, for most of us, we think of persecution as, the girl at work thinks I'm dumb because I'm a Christian. But this is like, you know, this guy had testing of his faith. And I got to tell you, this was a man who had really met Jesus. Through these dreams, God had led him to himself, and, and he was truly born again. In that refugee camp, he would evangelize. In fact, he even got into some physical trouble with other people because of his evangelization. So the point being this, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is a supernatural God who can speak to us in supernatural ways. And one of the ways that he speaks is through dreams. You know, he's not hindered by political systems or borders or laws forbidding the gospel to be preached. If necessary, he can reach people through dreams and draw them to Jesus, and he does do that. But of course, we've got to have the balance there, right? Not all dreams are supernatural. Not all thoughts you have are God speaking to you. You know, uh, some dreams are caused by spicy food and coffee and, and watching movies before you go to bed. So it's important that we judge everything by the word of God. If you have a dream, and it's in harmony with the will of God and the word of God, like Abimelech's dream, hey, that's somebody else's wife, don't sleep with her, then that is probably from God, right? If you have a dream, like my Iranian friend who said, you know, his dream was repent and put your faith in the gospel and be a disciple of Jesus Christ, yeah, then you can go to the bank on that, that that's from God. But if you wake up one morning and you had a dream that God wants you to leave your spouse and become a Tibetan monk and, you know, raise 101 Dalmatians, well, then probably that's not from God. Um, so the Lord speaks in supernatural ways, but we have to weigh everything by the scriptures, whether it's a, a dream or a word of prophecy or even a teaching. We have to weigh it by the scriptures to determine if it's from the Lord. We We, you know... Test all things, because the Lord will not contradict Himself. So let's continue on in verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called to Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom such a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see? that you did this thing. And Abraham said, I did it because I thought, there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is my sister, the daughter of my father, not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. So... Abimelech, he goes to Abraham and he says, man, you lied to me. You almost got me killed, man. God was going to kill me. And this is you. You lied to me. I believed you. Why didn't you tell me that woman was your wife and not your sister? And Abraham responds with a series of very lame excuses. Three excuses right in a row. Guys, just in case you you aren't clear on this already, let me just say it, that making excuses is a super not manly thing to do, okay? If you've done something wrong, be a man, own up to it, and just say you're sorry. That's manly. That's respectable. That's integrity. But Abraham is full of excuses. He has tons of excuses for himself. His first excuse is this. I thought you guys were a bunch of ungodly immoral people, and that you were going to kill me to get my wife. Now realize, this is a bit ironic, right? I thought you guys were super immoral, so I thought the best way to respond to you would be to lie to you and then give you my wife. Who's the immoral guy in this story? It's Abraham. That's the irony that we must see here. Here's excuse number two. Well, I didn't really lie to you because Sarah is not only my wife, she's actually my half-sister, and Abimelech's like, Dude, that doesn't make the situation any better. That's just, e. you know? Sarah and Abraham were half-siblings. They had the same dad, but not the same mom. So essentially what this is, is a half-truth. But a half-truth is a full-on lie because the intention is to mislead. So that's what it means when God thundered from Mount Sinai and said, thou shall not bear false witness. What is false witness? It's, it can be giving the right information with intentionally the wrong implication. The right information with the wrong implication. That's false witness. And that's exactly what Abraham's doing here. And here's brilliant excuse number three. He tries to blame it on God. He says, well, God made me leave my home. And you know what? I was, I'm a little scared. So I told my wife, do me a kindness, do me a favor. And everywhere we go, you just say you're my sister so he says, Abimelech, man, it's nothing personal. This is just my MO. This is what I do everywhere I go. This is my, you know, this is what I do to everybody. Well, and this doesn't make the situation any better either, does it? Now Abraham's not only a liar, he's a premeditated liar. He, it wasn't just a sudden decision made out of fear. This was premeditated. He's been planning this for 25 years. This is what he does every time he goes anywhere. And so what's interesting about this section is this. This is the first time in the Bible that we meet with the word integrity. It's not the last time for sure. Integrity. You know, integrity can be defined in this way. It is an unimpaired condition, soundness, an adherence to a code of moral values, honesty, the quality or state of being completely undivided. Integrity is an important concept in the Bible. Integrity is is part of what it means to be holy. Integrity is a requirement for anyone who wants to be a leader in God's church. And if someone compromises their integrity, well, then they have disqualified themselves from ministry, at least for a time. So integrity is super important to God in God's word. But interestingly, note this, the word integrity in this section is not used to describe Abraham. The word integrity in this section is not used to describe the guy who knows God and walks with God. It's used to describe the other guy, Abimelech, a pagan king who who hasn't met Jesus like Abraham has. He hasn't been saved by grace through faith in the promise of God like Abraham has. He's a guy who doesn't know the Lord, but that's the exact point of this story, that the guy who doesn't know the Lord acts with more integrity, more ethics than the guy who does know the Lord. And here's the point of the story. There are a lot of people in the world like Abimelech. There are a lot of people that you and I know who are like Abimelech. They don't know Jesus. They haven't put their faith in the gospel. They haven't been justified by faith. But they are people of integrity who don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. They love their kids. They have good marriages. They hate injustice. And they're good neighbors. They're friendly, hospitable, kind, generous people. Some of you know people like that. You work with them. You live next door to them. They're members of your family. And then there are Christians who are like Abraham, who, you know, they assume that all people who are not Christians are scary and threatening. But at the same time, they are acting with less integrity than many of those who don't know Jesus, who don't have the Holy Spirit within them. Now, it shouldn't be that way. But sometimes, as in our story, as in our reality that we live in day by day, that is what we experience. That's what happens. What we learned at the beginning of the book of Genesis is that God created human beings in his own likeness, in his own image. And one of the things that people have by virtue of being created in the image and likeness of God is a conscience, which is a moral rudder that helps them navigate life, helps them navigate right and wrong. And if a person follows their conscience, even if they don't know Jesus or read the Bible, it helps them it can help them navigate a lot of situations in life pretty successfully. They can have a good marriage, they can run a good business, they can be a good boss or or worker, they can be nice neighbors, have lots of friends, help people out, all without being born again and knowing Jesus. And some Christians find that surprising because because they're, you know, notion of people who don't know Christians is is not that, you know. It, they say, hey, how can that be that those people are are like, you know, they're acting more with more integrity than than the Christians I see, you know. I thought that people who didn't love Jesus were all drunks who sell drugs to kids and get divorced for fun and hate everything that's beautiful, and they put puppies in a gunny sack and throw them in the river, you know, as a hobby, And then you turn on the news and then you hear about some Christian leader who committed some terrible crime or committed a sin and all your non-Christian neighbors are like, whoa, that's hardcore, that's terrible. How could anyone do something like that? Much much less someone who calls himself a Christian. And you're like, hey, wait a minute, I thought we were the good guys and they were the the bad guys. I thought we had the moral high ground and not them. And that's the point of the story of Abraham and Abimelech. And it's actually a very good thing for us to see because it reminds us of the point of the gospel. And it it helps us to deal with our neighbors who are good people. It helps us to have a proper perspective on them. And the the gospel is this, that we are saved by grace through faith, not as a result of good works so that no one can boast. Because if salvation were based on morality, then Abimelech would be going to heaven here, and Abraham and Sarah would be going to hell. But that's the point of the gospel, that it's not the good guys who go to heaven and the bad guys who go to hell, which is how the majority of the world who doesn't know the gospel thinks. But rather, everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, everybody is a bad guy. And the wages of sin is actually death eternally. But God, in his love and mercy, has provided a way for bad guys to be saved from their sins and go to heaven and be transformed into new creations, who are not just reformed versions of their old selves, but who are transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. So what's interesting about Abimelech here is that despite Abraham's assumption to the contrary, Abimelech actually does believe in God on some level. He does fear God on some level. He doesn't have a relationship with God like Abraham does, but he believes in the existence of God. He might be somebody that we would refer to today as an agnostic. And maybe some of you can relate to this, that you know people in your life who are like Abimelech. There are agnostic people who live moral lives, and the gospel doesn't make a lot of sense to them because they're like, look at me, I'm a good person. And what you say to that person is this. You say, yes, you are a pretty good person. In fact, you might even be a nicer person than I am. But what you're failing to see is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the essence of Christian faith, is not morality for morality's sake. But that God is trying to connect us to himself to change our lives through relationship with him. And so the most important thing is to be connected to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Not just to be a moral person. Conscience is good, but conscience is not enough to get you in a relationship with God. One of the most poignant parables that Jesus tells. One of my uh, favorite parables to, to preach about and teach about is the parable of the king who organized a wedding feast. This is found in Matthew chapter 22. You can check it out if you've got your Bible on you. And the point is this. The king organized a wedding feast, and he invited a bunch of guests. He invited the rich and the powerful and the important people in society, but none of them showed up. Everybody felt like they had something better to do. Something more important to do. They rejected the invitation. So the king has... The, the party's planned. It's all ready to go. And so the king says to his servants, he says, Look, the feast has been prepared, but the people I invited are not here. So go out into the highways and the byways and invite anybody you find. Anyone who will come is welcome at my feast. And it says this, and I think this is really interesting. Check this out. He says that the servants went out and they invited people and they filled the feast with people, both the bad and the good. Now, isn't that interesting? It says the bad and the good. As part of a wedding feast in that day, and as part of a wedding feast in our story, everyone would be given a special wedding garment. So whether you were dirt poor and wearing rags, or whether you were a rich guy with nice clothes, everybody would be dressed in the wedding clothes. They would be given garments to wear from the king. Everyone would be wearing the same garment. But there was one man at this party who refused to put on the wedding garment. And when the king saw that man, he was greatly offended. And he went over and told him, Who do you think you are that you come to my party? How dare you come in this party and refuse to put on the clothing which I provided You know, who do you think you are? And he kicked this man out of the party. And not only that, but in a really strange twist of events that doesn't fit with the rest of the story, it says that that man was bound and cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. He went to hell. You are like, he went to hell because he didn't want to put on the clothes? That's hardcore, right? Yes, it is. The point of the story is this, no matter who you are, whether you're a good person or a bad person, whether you're a moral person or an immoral person, everyone is invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb and everyone will be clothed in the garments of salvation. They will be clothed not with their own justification, but with the righteousness of Christ. And the only person who will not be welcome at that feast is not the bad person, but the self-righteous person. We would expect, right, that the bad guys are the guys who can't come in, but no, it's the self-righteous person who's the problem. The person who has the audacity to claim that their righteousness is good enough, that they don't need the righteousness of Christ that's received as a free gift of God's grace through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because they're a decent moral person, a man of integrity like Abimelech. In God's kingdom, both the good and the bad are welcomed in. Both the good and the bad are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And it's only the self-righteous person who refuses the righteousness of Christ, thinking that theirs is good enough, they are the only one who will be cast out. And what that means is that there will be a lot of people who will be very surprised on the last day when they stand before God. Because they will expect that God is going to allow them into heaven based on the fact that they were good, decent people. And they will be surprised to find that many bad people who put their faith in Jesus Christ will be welcomed into the kingdom. But they will not even though they lived respectable lives. So the message for us today is this. If you are here today, if you hear this message and you are an immoral person, you have done terrible things. Maybe you are still doing terrible things, you know. You, you have a sense of guilt and shame because of your sin. God's word to you today is this. Come as you are and I will receive you because Jesus had has paid the price for your sin. And I will forgive you and take away your guilt and your shame and I will clothe you with the pure garments of salvation and justification. I will give you a fresh start, a new life, and I will put my spirit in you to transform your life. And if you're here today and you are a moral person, You're like Abimelech, a decent person with lots of integrity. The message for you is this. You also need to put your faith in Jesus Christ because no matter how good you are, your morality is not enough to save you. If you think your morality is enough to save you, then you are that man at the wedding feast who refused to put on the clothes of salvation thinking that yours were good enough. And for all of us who are Christians, notice what Abraham does next in the next few verses. He prays for Abimelech, and Abimelech is healed. And we should learn from this story is is how we as Christians should approach those who do not share our faith. Rather than fearing them, as Abraham did, rather than thinking that we are superior to them, we should rather just humbly love them and pray for them and point them to Jesus. So I'll finish up here by looking at the birth of Isaac from chapter 21. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. You know, we've been studying the life of Abraham for a number of weeks now, and what we've seen is that the majority of the story of the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis is the story of Abraham and Sarah waiting just a lot of waiting. You know, waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled but not seeing anything happen. For 24 long frustrating years, nothing happened. They didn't have a single child. They're homeless, living in tents as foreigners in someone else's land. They're just waiting and waiting and waiting. Abraham was 99 years old when something finally happened. Sarah was 89. And with each day that went by, right, their faith was put to the test all the more. Because with each day that went by, the likelihood of God's promise being fulfilled, at least from a a material or physical perspective, diminished. The situation looked more and more hopeless. I mean, can you imagine waiting for 24 years for something? Most of us lose our minds if we have to wait the DMV for three hours, you know what I mean? 24 years, that's hardcore, that's really rough. But finally the baby's born. The baby boy that Abraham and Sarah were waiting for, for 25 years, long, painful, frustrating years, oftentimes doubting whether it would ever happen at all. And he's finally here, and you can get a sense of the joy that they felt. And they named him Isaac, which means laughter because this was such a, a wonderfully crazy thing that God did for them, giving them a child at this old age. So Abraham circumcised his son and God, you know, as God told him to do. And, and by doing so, he's saying, God, I know that you gave me this child and I dedicate him to you. Just as I have a covenant relationship with you, Lord, I want my child to have a covenant relationship with you. I will raise him. I will do everything I can to raise him to know you and walk with you and honor you. What an amazing heart of a father. I hope that all of us who are fathers in here have that same heart. But here's what I'd like you to see, and I'll wrap up with this. With the birth of Isaac, we see the close of a very long and difficult chapter in Abraham and Sarah's life. And you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. And at this point, they're holding their little boy in their arms, and they're looking into each other's eyes, and they're realizing that God kept his promise. They're realizing that over the past 25 years, as they struggled, as they suffered to believe God and trust God, that God knew what he was doing the whole time. That all along the way, God knew exactly what he was doing. He had a plan. They just couldn't see it. And now, once they're at the end of it, they can look back and they can see things clearly. Have you ever had that happen? I certainly have. I come through something, and I'm like, why in the world is this happening the way it is? This is terrible. Why, God? And then I look back later on, and I'm able to see, oh, that's why. That's what you're doing. I see, God. See, Abraham, the champion of faith, the father of faith, the man who is a prototype of what it looks like to walk with God by faith and be connected to God by faith in his promises— His faith was stretched to the point of breaking. It was tested to its absolute breaking point. God put him in a situation that was totally hopeless from a physical, worldly perspective. And Abraham, all he had was the word of God and the promise of God to hold on to and lean upon. And he had to choose many, many times, will I choose to walk by faith or walk by sight? Will I still believe God's word even if I don't see that it could ever happen the way he said it would? Abraham's faith was being tested. But now holding Isaac in his arms, Abraham and Sarah look back on the past 25 years of their life and they can see God's hand in it all. How about you? Has your faith ever been tested? You know, I'm guessing it has. And if you haven't been a Christian long enough to have your faith tested, then expect that it will happen because that's part of faith, that God tests our faith. You know, faith, I would put it this way, faith is not a pill that you can take. Faith is a muscle that you must exercise. James chapter 1 says this, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Faith is not a pill that you take, it's a muscle that you exercise. And the more you exercise it, the stronger it grows. And as that faith is tested and stretched, as Abraham's was, it causes your relationship with God to deepen and mature. You know, something that happens when our faith is tested is this. It causes the true, underlying, deep-rooted issues of our hearts to come to the surface, to be revealed. You know, the way that precious metals are are refined, is that heat is applied to them, right? Fire, and that the fire and that heat causes the impurities, the dross, the dirt, to rise to the surface so that it can be wiped away, so it can be dealt with, so it can be cleansed, so that only the pure metal remains. And if those impurities and dirt are never dealt with, then what happens? If they're never brought to the surface by the application of heat and fire— Then they just remain lodged inside that metal and it compromises the integrity of that metal. It's weaker, it's more easily broken and destroyed. Likewise, if our faith is is not tested, when our faith is tested by trials, when we're stretched by difficult circumstances, the true issues of our heart, the deep rooted issues of our heart, are revealed. And brought to the surface. And why does God allow that to happen? He allows it to happen because he loves us. You know, it's rightly been said that God loves us, loves you so much that he accepts you as you are, but he loves you too much to let you remain as you are. And essentially that's the story of Genesis chapters 12 through 20. It's the story of how God allowed Abraham and Sarah's faith to be tested to its breaking point. And there were times that their faith did falter. And instead of trusting in God's promise and God's goodness and God's power, they they took things into their own hands. But God was faithful to them even when they were unfaithful. And God's purpose in testing them was to bring those issues of their heart up to the surface so they could be dealt with. So you could lovingly and kindly deal with those things. So you could help them grow into maturity. You know, the New Testament uses the terminology of being formed into the image of Christ. It tells us that is God's ultimate goal for us. That's the final product that he's shaping us into. God's ultimate plan for our life, the big picture is this. He wants to save you from your sin. He wants to save you from judgment in hell. He wants to give you eternal life and hope. And then he wants to place his spirit inside you and then form you into the image of Christ because that is for your good and for his glory. Jesus Christ is the image of perfection. He is the epitome of the word integrity. And it's often by the testing of our faith that we grow, that we mature, that we're formed into the image of Christ. It's by the testing of our faith that the dross of our hearts is drawn to the surface so it can be dealt with and wiped away. So that brings us back to the issue of integrity, where we started. It might have seemed from what I said earlier that I was talking about being saved by, by grace through faith and that I was minimizing the importance of integrity and holiness. But God's word doesn't minimize the importance of that at all. God calls his children to be holy as he is holy. But when we talk about holiness and integrity, we cannot put the cart before the horse. Integrity will help you in your life, but it avails nothing eternally if it's just something that you muster up within yourself. God wants you to be a person of integrity, but more importantly, he wants you to be a person of faith. If you are first a person of faith, then God will use your faith as the means by which he forms integrity in you. That's what he did in the life of Abraham. What we see in the end illustrated in our story is that integrity apart from faith avails nothing. But faith is the thing which God uses to work in the lives of his children and to form integrity in them. The ultimate goal being to make us in the image of Christ. The Bible refers to God as the author and perfecter of our faith. It tells us that he who began a good work in you will see it through to the day of completion. And my prayer for us all today is that God's entire plan for our lives would be fulfilled. That we would be people who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and we are people who are transformed by the Holy Spirit into the image of Christ for our good and for his glory. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you humbly. Lord, we ask that you give us Lord, insight into your holiness, into your integrity, into all that you are. And Lord, we pray that that we would be people of faith, Lord. Help us to be people of faith. But, Lord, we ask that as we walk with you by faith, use our faith to form in us integrity and holiness, to form in us the character of Jesus Christ, Lord. We pray that you would cleanse the dross from our lives. Lord, thank you that you love us so much that you accept us as we are, but you love us too much to let us remain as we are. And thank you, Lord, that you, want, you care more about us than we care about ourselves. You have bigger plans for us than we have for ourselves. And, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your grace, Lord. We thank you for everything that you do for us in Jesus Christ. And I pray your blessing upon this congregation as we go out. Lord, let us be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Let us be ambassadors of the message of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.